Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. An important show, I think a helpful show. I hope it's a helpful show today because the topic of the show is trauma. And I've brought on Claudia Black, who's an actor, but also uh, a trauma therapist. She does somatic experience. She is a practitioner in training of uh, the somatic experience, which is a, a way to deal with trauma, basically. She's going to explain all this stuff when she comes out. You know, the last five years we've just experienced collectively a lot of trauma in this country between Trump and the, the horrible assaults on our on our freedoms and on minorities and women and LGBTQ community and, and the rise of fascism and the attack on our government and then COVID with you know between quarantining and having to suddenly uh, be in these spaces confined plus you know people are dying there's a million people are dead in this country and people have long COVID, and it's just been this has been horrible. So, and now we've got the war in Ukraine. You know, it, it's just been trauma after trauma after trauma in a collective sort of way. And it's something that we all, uh, you know, by dint of being alive right now in this moment, suffer from. You know, and it's something that we all have to take seriously. So, I'm thrilled to have Claudia on. She's really good with this, with with analyzing what causes trauma and offering some tips on what you and me and all of us can do to make ourselves heal and feel better. So I'm excited to talk to Claudia. Before we bring her on, I do have an announcement. As some of you know, for, I don't know, 18 months, my friend Lincoln's Bible and I went on the after show on Friday nights, right? We did this for a long time and we had a cocktail usually and talked about stuff that went on during the week. And we did this, you know, pretty much throughout the quarantine. I, I can't remember when it started, but it was over a year. I think it was about a year and a half that we were both on the show. And 
I know there's been a lot of like rumors as to why we stopped being on the show, but the real reason was just burnout. I had a lot going on in my personal life. The holidays were coming and LB, I mean, you know, she was in grief. She was grieving. And as you saw, if you follow her Twitter feed, she was working on this project, this Elizabeth Taylor project, which is a big deal. So, you know, we were both burned out and busy and um, our energies needed to be spent elsewhere. Um, the show was always fun. I, I always enjoyed it. I love the audience. I love being with her and, and uh, you know, talking through everything. But it, you know, it takes a lot of energy to do the show. It, it does. It, it's not uh, a lot of outflow, you know. We didn't want to go on that show and just go through the motions. That's never what we wanted to do, right? So, so we decided to take a break. And now we're coming back from the break. Tonight, this very day, April 1st, Friday, at 5 o'clock Pacific, 8 o'clock Eastern, LB and I are going to do a show, a live show, which is called The 5-8. F-I-V-E and the numeral 8. And the reason it's called The 5-8, two reasons. One, because that's the time it's going to be on. 5 o'clock in Los Angeles, 8 o'clock in New York. The 5-8 time slot, if you will. And it is also the format of the show. We're going to have five topics, and we're going to talk about each topic for eight minutes, and only eight minutes. I actually bought a timer, an old-school kitchen timer, which is going to ding at the end of the eight-minute period of time, and then we're going to move on to the next topic, keeping the show, we hope, brisk, right? Um, this is our first stab at it. We didn't really do that much prep. Uh, Maybe that we try to do it, and the technology fails. You know, who knows? So uh, we're not making big announcements or anything like that. In it's what's called a soft opening, just to see and make sure that the that it works right. But the plan is to do it tonight, April first, twenty twenty two, five o'clock Pacific time, eight o'clock Eastern at the five eight. You can follow the feed, assuming that the technology works. It should be broadcast on my Twitter feed, on her Twitter feed, and on my YouTube channel, which is mine is Greg Oliar. My Twitter feed is Greg Oliar. Her Twitter feed is Lincoln's Bible. So if you are around at five o'clock or eight o'clock, depending on where you are, or six o'clock or seven o'clock, if you're in those uh, mountain or central time, uh, yeah, come join us. You know, we'll be able to look at the comments, hopefully, if the technology works out. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since we did this. We're excited to come back. We're excited to do it. We're excited to bring it to you. So, yeah, that's what's happening. That's what's happening this very night, April 1st. But that's not what we're doing now. What we're doing now is my podcast, Prevail. The topic of today is trauma. We'll be right back with Claudia Black. It's been seven hours and 37 minutes Since I put my phone away I call up Giuliani on my burner phone I said, Rudy, Rudy, put your phone away I am president and I can do whatever I want Even if it makes no fucking sense 
Eastman and Powell say I won for certain and for sure. But nothing, I said, nothing can convince my fans. Nothing is fair. Nothing is fair. Let's cool. Claudia Black, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so now you're an actor, and the one interviewer who described you as practically sci-fi royalty, that's a quote, <laughs> wasn't far off because not, not only are you good and you're in these sci-fi things, but you tend to play these very regal characters. Um, you also do a lot of voice work for video games, and I suspect that everybody down of the of the thousands of people downloading this podcast none of them will recognize your voice from the video games. I don't think there's a lot of gamers that listen to my show. Oh, really? I, may, okay. I don't know. I may be wrong. I don't know. But I, wanna, I do want to talk about acting later. But the reason I asked you on was to talk about your other career. So you're a trauma coach and a somatic experience practitioner, which, as I understand it, it's, it's, it's sort of a way of helping people use their bodies to help their minds cope with trauma. And I want to get into it more later. But I, just do I have that right, the way that I'm sort of talking about it? Yeah, and just ethically, I should be specific, and thank you for doing your research. I'm probably in a, while there's a specific uh, credential gap, uh, stop gap that they've created called a provisional SEP. I don't have the piece of paper that says I'm a provisional SEP, but that's basically my status. I have about 10 hours of supervision to complete, but I've completed the training. And so they require us to use all of these tools throughout the three or four years it takes to complete the training. So we're using all this whole modality all the time in our, in our profession, wherever we're applying it. Uh, but I don't have the full SEP uh, certification yet, but I am. Okay. So I'm a sort of provisional SCP. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll take it. You know, I think it's fine. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so, and again, I, I wanted you to come on and talk about trauma because, uh, and I wanted to do an episode about trauma because I think it's an underreported thing. I mean, these are, these are traumatic times that we are all living in. You know, we had, we had four years of Trump who, you know, malignant narcissist, I think walked around triggering a lot of people who have PTSD. Um, we have COVID and the quarantine, which I think dramatically altered our lives in ways that probably we don't even realize yet and, and won't realize for, for a while. We had the insurrection and the realization that Trump and his collaborators were going to you know, overthrow the democracy to keep him in office. We have a Department of Justice 14 months on hasn't really done anything that, you know, to combat that. So I think everybody's sort of if they haven't turned on Merrick Garland, everyone's like, what's taking so long? There, there's a, a, a sort of hopelessness and despair that can start to, to creep in. And then we have folks like, you know, Steve Bannon and Mike Flynn and Cocaine Jr. there basically rubbing <laughs> our nose in the fact that they're still, you know, out there doing stuff and not in jail. And, you know, the fascists and the Nazis on the rise. And the, the, about the only thing that we didn't get uh, from the Trump years uh, was war. And now with the situation in Ukraine, it's like, holy shit, this is basically potentially the first hot war in, in Europe and a meaningful hot war or, or large mm -hmm. scale one since 1945. So th this is suddenly, uh, uh, you know, a barrage of different kinds of trauma. I mean, is there, do you, is there, do you think, a collective trauma that we're all experiencing? What do you see? Oh, my God, 100%. I mean, 
several things. I mean, let, let's also include that white supremacy, which is the system that we're watching, hopefully dismantle. You yeah. know, if, if any vulnerable person and any vulnerable community is, is under attack. So, you know, Asian hate, Black Lives Matter, all of these communities, LGBTQ, it's, it's never ending, you know. So one of the things that became really, really um, important in our trauma training and the somatic experiencing modality is understanding how highly social we are as humans. Uh, we have a, a, one of the most sophisticated, if not the most sophisticated social engagement system of all the animals on the planet. Um, and there are other very sophisticated animals, don't get me wrong, elephants, especially dolphins, etc. So um, we have a social engagement system and we are constantly co-regulating with one another. And one of the things that brought me into the work was attending a workshop with this um, senior SCP, Gina Ross. And someone had just mentioned in passing to me one day, you should attend this workshop that, that this woman, Jean, is doing about uh, people in media. She didn't use the trauma word, probably just as well, because I probably would have put me off because trauma is a really off-putting word. Yeah. Um, and I think now, I mean, this is the term I use, I should trademark it. I think we're, we're in a turducken of trauma. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> It's trauma inside of trauma inside of trauma, right? And it continues. And the basic definition that a lot of people, you know, it's a workable definition people use of trauma is too much, too fast, too soon. And really what we're talking about is the system going into overwhelm. And then really at that point, based on how ancient our nervous systems are, we have in a way a menu of, of decreasingly sophisticated options, I should say. People have heard of fight or flight. Some people have heard of freeze. Uh, there's also a fawning response, F-A-W-N. I have a weird accent, so I should probably spell a few things. Um, and those are, you know, in terms of our social engagement system, we're going to try and use our fawn response first. We're going to try and so socially engage with the person to see if we can minimize the threat, to really see if there is a threat in this space. And one of the things that's most alarming about COVID to us as a collective is that it's an invisible threat. So our nervous systems, no matter how sophisticated they have become over the millennia or however long humans have been here, not good at the mathsies, am I? Um, we, math is hard, you guys. Um, I have trauma around math. I was very good at math until I had that trauma experience. So now I seem like I'm really, really silly in that subject. Um, and it's, I kind of am. Anyway. Regardless of how much we, our system has developed over time, what's interesting about a man named Stephen Porges, who's contributed to the somatic experiencing model through his work called polyvagal theory, he believes that it's an evolutionary development of our system, meaning, you know, dorsal vagal system from when we, if we were in the water, if that's what we believe. I mean, it's, it's controversial these days where we came from and whether the earth is round. Um, <laughs> Hmm. Uh, are we going to take certain givens as givens or yeah. are we just I don't know really seems pretty slack to me I don't, I don't know yeah, yeah. Mm, feels like we're definitely under the shoe of something big and nasty anyway so it's developed over time and we're going to use as as the more sophisticated version of our nervous system if it's available to us to try and minimize threat and COVID being an invisible threat is something that our nervous system doesn't really understand so a lot of us would have been distressed by that just alone being experiencing okay. a pandemic and how confusing it was for our social engagement system that people we love could potentially harm us so some people went into complete denial about that oh i love this person so they can't harm me so they you know didn't follow the 
the guidelines and just decided to roll the dice. And we'll see in the collective people having varying degrees of tolerance for risk. And so that's been a really interesting discussion in households. I know it's been incredibly challenging for, you know, divorced families. I've had some experience with that myself over COVID, but just sort of having to navigate and negotiate, you know, different households and different sets of rules and how to do threat analysis on a, on a continuing basis, right? And we're all having to do that as the CDC keeps changing its mind sure. and yeah. its messaging. So there's been a lot of different layers about COVID that have been really distressing and the unknowns, which you alluded to before. We don't know. We don't know about long COVID and we don't know about some of these, these implications. But one of the biggest things that the research is showing about trauma in general is the people who tend to do the best in a traumatic whether it's a traumatic event or from a traumatic background, you know, there's trauma is a broad topic. There's a lot of different types of trauma that we can experience, but in general, the people who tend to do better and not experiencing long lasting um, trauma symptoms are those who've been in community. And that's what was really challenging about COVID because it, it separated us out and the nature of trauma itself is to fragment to isolate uh it has its own intelligence as one of my bosses says you know he says trauma has its own intelligence and and as i add to that absent a bona fide cure it loops and so my great interest in somatic experiencing came when i was in i was experiencing complex ptsd and there's different terms but that's sort of a you know a more widely accepted and understood term ptsd and cptsd aren't necessarily used all the time by specialists in our field, but it's something the public can identify with and understand. And it just means they're sort of very complex and, you know, myriad layers to my trauma. And somatic experiencing was the first intervention, the first tool that was used on me that managed to reorganize so much in real time that it felt too good to be true. And then I applied it immediately i've been taught the tools at this workshop uh as part of a more global perspective gina does work you know once you become really good using these tools you don't just want to sit and do the one-on-one -on -one work you want to use it in, the, in, in a broader way to help as many people as sure. you can yeah. and so gina does she's multilingual five or six languages and she's she's published a lot of materials and uh and as i said you know uh, people can can check in on my website i'm trying to provide a landing page for people so they can either read or listen to things or get as many resources things as they possibly can because it's you know there's nothing there's no one size that fits all with this and nothing is a panacea but there are definitely some valuable entry points into starting to get well with this stuff so we have this issue of being disconnected and not being able to be next to each other and around each other and and that idea of feeling stuck in a home with people during lockdown replicates exact experience of trauma itself because something is stuck and the the phrase that i was going to complete is you know trauma has its own intelligence and absent the right or a bona fide tool, it loops. And so we are going to have this experience of here we go again, nothing is changing, I'm stuck, and we'll go into those very sort of limited and restricted ways of thinking. And SE, SE work is is extraordinary because it it's focused primarily on the autonomic nervous system. And what it does is, you know, that you're borrowing your practitioner's nervous system. So ideally, after going through these years of training, the, the SEP should know how to really regulate their own system. Okay. So what differentiates it from traditional talk therapy, and there are some exceptional talk therapists who are combining that with their 
the SE work and it's a really beautiful combination. What makes this different is that you're actually, your body, your nervous system is receiving the benefit of someone who's not going into dysregulation and they're, they're, um, all of their systems are more optimally operating. So you can start to sense when you're, when you're in this training, you can start to sense when someone's heart rate's getting really increased or when they're going into a freeze response. And so I find breathing easily and I'm, you know, my heart rates at a, you know, at a healthy rate that can actually have enormous value. So in the collective right now, if we have leaders, and this is part of Gina's work, if we have leaders who are well-regulated, then we're going to follow suit. We're going to take autonomic cues from people in, in leadership and, and our systems are going to start to downregulate because we are such social creatures. And when you think about that in terms of you know, how we were in packs, we can't all stay in hypervigilance all the time because it's unsustainable, right? right. It's, not, it's not healthy for our systems. So we tend to have sort of a sentinel group that are out on the outer you know, reaches of the group or they're performing that role somehow where they're, you know, if we were camping you know, back in the day or, or out living you know, uh, pre-housing um, and before we domesticated dogs, someone would have been listening up out at night to, sure. to see if we were safe, right? And a uh, psychiatrist I know believes that the brain developed significantly, made a massive leap sociologically and developmentally once we did domesticate animals because the dogs then took over that job and we could get better sleep. And as a result of getting more sleep, we became much higher functioning and our brains Oh, we're wow. able to expand. It's a very interesting correlation. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah right. Do you want me shout to pause to, there? Because I can out, talk about out, this shit for hours. <laughs> shout out to the dogs. You know, I, I, uh, I'm more of a cat person. So I, I am the one in the house who wakes up whenever anything happens. But it's interesting, all this stuff about the social, because the quarantine, which really went on for two years in a, in a pretty pronounced way, I mean, took away. Actually, yeah, cared. I mean, we're so much we're such social creatures and to, to have a lot of our social constructs just taken away from us at that moment has yeah. to do something not great to everybody's brains. I would think. hundred um, percent. Did you see more of a, a, of an uptick in people needing help during the quarantine from before, or was it about the same? What do you think? Well, there was, there was a massive uptick with Trump. That's, I haven't said his name in a long time. Um, I'd gesture if we were using video to sort of do charades <laughs> and not use his name, um, 45. Uh, so there was a massive uptick because he, he just represented so much in terms of threat and our nervous systems, if we have undigested trauma in our system, our nervous system can't really discern between perceived threat and direct and real threat. So anything undigested that triggers us is going to bring us, especially through the amygdala, into what feels like a direct experience of whatever that past trauma was. So if any of us have had experience with bullies and chaotic parents and, you know, I mean, and that particular pathology of narcissism, enormously triggering. Um, and then once COVID hit, uh, Peter Levine, who created and developed the model of somatic experiencing got on a webinar immediately, quite a few of them, in fact, and said, okay, here's, here's how we need to support the collective because something of this size, a, a pandemic represents an existential threat. And so yeah. in that situation, anything undigested is going to come up, anything we haven't been able, and the triggers are always going to be the triggers, but if we haven't found 
tools that allow us to come back to a, you know, a, a decent level of regulation and self-regulation, we were going to be really impacted. Now, um, okay, I want to talk, I have a question about kids, um, but yeah. before I forget to do it, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right okay. back with Claudia Black. There is a world beneath our own, created over a century ago by America's original gangsters, Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, Al Capone. And it was infiltrated almost immediately by the world's most formidable spies. The new podcast, The World Beneath, illuminates the untold 100-year history of mobsters and spies. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Okay, we're back with Claudia Black. Um, okay, you have kids, as I do, and I feel like one one story globally that really has gotten short shrift in the media is the mental health aspect of the effect that the pandemic is going to have on these kids, on this Gen Z. You know, I think it obviously it affects everybody, but I'm sure it's easier for me as a almost 50 year old guy to just, okay, well, I don't have to go to the office. I can just take a longer walk and I can handle it. But to be in high school, to be in college and have to basically sit out two years of these, so, they're, they're so important formatively um, to develop who you are as people and, and develop your social habits and all this stuff. It's almost like a lot of it either fell away entirely or got hit, the pause button was hit or it went into these weird areas of, uh, you know, online stuff became much more important. And what I found in this town is that these little groups developed where maybe there's like a dozen kids in each group, but that was it. But that, that dozen kids didn't have much uh, interaction with anybody else. So when everybody went back to school, it became very strange. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what did you see about, about that? What do you think? I, I'm just, I'm worried about the kids, honestly. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about kids in general. I know worrying about kids feels like a full-time occupation for a parent, doesn't it? So, yeah. I mean, definitely in my household, there was an interesting, um, not split, but I could see how it was benefiting one kid to be able to be at home because uh, if anyone out there is familiar with Dorna Markova's work, Dr. Markova, M-A-R-K-O-V-A, she's written some very interesting books, uh, Irreconcilable Differences. There was one that uh, collaborative intelligence there for adults and there was one that was for parents called how your child is smart and i came across that book someone put me onto it about 10 or 12 years ago and it's all about learning styles and it talks about you know we may not just be visual or auditorily or kinesthetically oriented there's actually a pecking order of those three and how our brain seems to naturally work in those modes different modes of focus really is what donna talks about then it'll, it'll determine how well your kid will do in a traditional learning environment. So these schools, the way they're set up post-industrial revolution, if people follow um, the late great Sir Ken Robinson's work, you know, post-industrial revolution, these schools are really sausage factories to try and get us into the workforce as soon as possible yeah. to pay taxes, right? So, so great for kids often who are auditory learners or visual learners because they're heavily catered to but the kinesthetic kids who are and i'm sort of negating what i just said before it's not it's primary input primary focus if they're primarily kinesthetically 
most alert, they're going to need to move around and move their bodies. So for one of my kids who would fall into that category, he actually loved being at home at first in the lockdown because he could pat his dogs and cuddle his dogs and have all these tactile experiences. He could swivel on his chair and click his pen and move around and the teacher wouldn't complain because he wasn't disrupting the learning environment. Right. My other kid had an inc a totally different experience. He really needs the classroom. He really needs to be able to see his teacher and build a relationship with the teacher. And that's how I was as a learner. And I was, you know, if I had a positive relationship with my teacher in some way, I would focus and I was a great student. And if I, if the teacher picked on me for talking because I was a chatty Cathy, then I was in real trouble. And then, and you could see it reflected in my grades. And those are basic things that happen to students the world over, I think, depending on the, the pedagogical sort of leanings of the schools. So I think in terms of mental health for kids, there was suddenly being expected either, you know, the older teens were being expected to be completely self-led, which is a college level uh, set yeah. of skills, which a lot of kids in college don't yet have and have to learn quickly. So I would sort of say, well, I guess this is early preparation for college, but you know, the schools were figuring it out as they went along. So there was this sort of, it was a black hole. These kids fell into a big unknown. And because we are such social creatures, they lost all of that crucial social engagement. Yeah. And for some parents, I mean, for me, I personally enjoyed the fact that I didn't have to schlep several different places. My, my task is somehow as a single mother to try and be at two opposite ends of Los Angeles during peak hour to serve my children and what they're doing sports-wise. It's impossible and highly stressful. And I'd been in hypervigilance hyper for a really long time. So my nervous system got a little bit of a break in one category because I wasn't, you know, running around all the time. Sure. And so in terms of kids' mental health, some of it's very much determined by how the parents were in the household or whoever they were staying with. And there's been food insecurity in families where kids were relying on food at school and not being able to be there and get that meal and just so many different layers of, you know, in these multi-generational families living together, what stress has that brought in and kids not wanting to be on video and not having the technology and uh, that, you know, the disparity of, you know, financially, how, how this impacted kids in different families and not wanting to expose their home life to a classroom, and sure. it was so, you know, and then, and then these other traumatizing aspects, sorry about the plane going overhead. Are you hearing that? Is it I heard through? it. I did not know what it was. I thought it was, okay. I thought it was water going down. A, you know, somebody oh, was weird. taking a bath in the bath. I don't know. It's a plane. Always. Okay. I'm always in a bath. I'm actually calling you from, just kidding. It's possible. <laughs> I might do that one time. Yeah. I mean, so just from a basic co-regulation standpoint, if the families are stressed, then everyone in that household is going to be stressed. If the kids didn't have access to a park or somewhere to run around, you know, problematic. If kids had pets, they were enormously useful because it was an excuse. If the, if the pet is a walkable pet, then they could at least do that. Mm -hmm. But at least they're in some kind of relational dynamic with the creature. Um, and I love what animals provide for kids in that space because they're nonverbal connections. Yeah. And a lot of kids, when they go into overwhelm, are going to lose their words first right in terms of i mean it's it's a weird there it's a generation that is marked by this global experience yeah. and it's it's changing education there are some positive things that are coming out of this because they're sort of reconsidering sats and ridiculous testing in america that really didn't reflect a kid's true intelligence and, and skill sets and abilities and personality God, I mean, it's, yeah, time, time will tell, but um, resources and connection and community make a huge difference. So some aspects of this are helpful because they all went through it together. Yeah. 
and and some of it's more nuanced you know it's like when when i left school uh, in the 90s we had the aids epidemic and we had the gulf war and those things framed our generation and right. so these kids will have this kind of context that they can share but at the same time we don't know exactly how this is going to play out and how it's going to iterate and what it's done to their brains it's it's going to be interesting to see i mean what i found with the online school i i almost feel like you need to put school in quotes like they, mm -hmm. anytime you have a bunch of kids using te the same technology as a bunch of old people or relatively <laughs> old people, the kids are going to figure that shit out way faster than the, I mean, the, the way that they were able, like elaborate barter systems cropped up out of nowhere. Like I'll do your history homework. If you do my math, like that kind of thing that was going on constantly, yeah. which is cool yeah. in a way because it was social. Right. And they figured it out. They had the workarounds. They just, they right. just gamed the system as much as they could. But I mean. I feel like there's a um, the, the belief in school, like it, what you were saying before about the, the sausage factory. Well, there, there's a level at which you have to believe in the school as being a thing. You have to believe in the teacher having authority. You have to believe in the environment having importance and the grades mattering. And if right. none of that stuff really matters, you know, does the grades, everyone's grades were changed a lot during the quarantine. So like, what do the grades right. matter? And what are they learning? I don't know. It's a big, it's, it, it, it's an open question. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this generation navigates through it in the years to come, because I, you know, the, there, there is a mental health component to it. And I think it's much more big and real than, than a lot of people realize, unfortunately. Massively. And, you know, just to that, I grew up in Australia in the Australian school system in what ended up being actually a very progressive school even for Australia that does, does, doesn't follow the, the grade system. I, my, my self-esteem did much better, I'm sure of it, not being graded. And I was able to really heavily specialize. So it was very, it ended up being a very interest-based, interest-led curriculum for me, which was essential. And I think from a pedagogical standpoint, that's kind of crucial really for kids to have a proper education is to be able to follow interest. And the, the traditional system here is not set up for that in America, but Operation Varsity Blues, different things happening to sort of start indicating that we really shouldn't trust the way it was before. Yeah. I think that the SAT system being challenged now is enormously helpful. I'm hopeful that there will be a positive revolution in that regard and that maybe our kids currently will be the first ones to benefit from those shifts. I hear people talking from therapists talking across the spectrum saying, college is becoming less and less important. I mean, every single aspect of our culture is now being questioned and challenged. We're going to have high rise buildings that are empty because, you know, sure, yeah. bosses cannot convince people to come into work anymore because there are going to be benefits for some to stay home. It's more manageable yep. for some, right? Yep. Sure. I mean, a commute is, is a waste of time. Any way you look at it. Yeah. I like yeah. going somewhere to work as opposed to just being in my house yeah. because it's just, I, you know, uh, the, the, the differentiation between point A and point B makes it easy for me to assume a role when I'm somewhere right. else that I don't have yeah. to assume at home. Um, so yeah, I, there's lots of, I think, long-term impacts that, uh, that we're going to find out about that we don't know about. Yeah, I think for kids across the spectrum of neurodiversity, that's, I think, going to be the biggest, 
you know, I know kids who've had a really rough time because they didn't find those workarounds and the, the teachers put homework and assignments up on different platforms and the kids couldn't keep up with it and they, di they didn't manage to find the hacks with technology and their grades have absolutely plummeted. And the teachers have said, hey, this is really surprising. I don't know what's going on with this kid. It's like, well, just goes to show the gaps in these systems when they don't, not one size fits all. Yeah. It's tough. And so the, what about the teachers? I mean, the people on the I front know. lines, like, you know, the teachers and people in, on the front lines in the hospitals, they're just, you know, their faith in, in, in what is there to support them must be at an all-time historical low. And then it's hard, too, I think, if you're a teacher to teach while sitting at a computer while your kids mm. are, like, in these little boxes. I mean, what do you do? One of my yeah. friends just got his teaching degree, and I think this was his first year of teaching in his own classroom, he's just fifth grade, which is a hard grade anyway. And it's like, yeah. he's like, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't trained for this, you know? So, okay, let, let's get back to you and the trauma work. Cause I want to get back to that uh, for a minute. What, how did you become interested in this? You said you went to that workshop, but it sounds like this is something that resonated with you. How did, how did your interest in it develop? I had, I mean, actors are, I think by nature seekers because where, you know, we have this, sort of instrument I refer to myself like a car you know so it's like you know when I showed up to an acting studio a few years ago they're like what are you doing here you don't need to learn how to act I said I'm here because you know people who are fit when you you know as one of the teachers who I'd worked with years before had said why are there thin fit people at a gym you're not one and done you don't sort of work out once mm. and then you're it, it is a gymnasium for a reason you need to work those muscles and so I was challenging uh, feeling quite broken uh, in my life in general. I had a full life crash, actually. I was looking for ways to, to tinker around with my instrument and get it going again because it had been so disrupted and was operating very differently. And I think as a female instrument, having birthed children, all kinds of things happen to the instrument, to the brain. I mean, you know, a lot of women call it placenta brain where you just sort of the what your ability to access information goes. So how do you memorize lines? All sorts of things happen, right? And then combined with that, I didn't realize until I hit 40, I think I had a, a life-altering experience when a life-threatening experience when I went on a scuba diving dive and and it was very life-threatening everything that could have gone wrong on that dive went wrong and I got the bends and was rushed to hospital oh dear okay. um I had to save my own life basically and we were an hour away from land and and everyone else freaked out and so I had to go into this real sort of you know survival mode and I'd had a lot of situations like that in my past, and I didn't realize that my trauma was really compounding. And most of us don't identify as having trauma, so it's great that we're now in this global conversation. It's awful how we got here, all the reasons and ways. It's an essential conversation now. And, you know, trauma can be trauma with a big T, as we say, with a capital T, or it can just be anything that surprised us in our lives or literally took our breath away. It can just be trapped energy in the system. And so everybody tends to evaluate themselves and say, oh, well, you know, I've got my, I've got my faculties sort of, I've got, I've got, I'm abled, I'm fine, I'm not traumatized. So a lot of people will talk themselves out of needing any kind of investigation in the trauma realm because they just assume they're functioning enough and let's not, you know, kick the hornet's nest. Right. Um, literally had that conversation with my own father at one point because, you know, he, he was, you know, he's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, his parents escaped with about three hours to spare and his dad had been planning this for a long time and they were 
not in love, his parents, but he, his dad married his mum so that he could get her safely out because of Germany, they're both Jewish. And he knew it was indecent to travel with her out of wedlock. So he said, look, let's just get married. You can get your name on the paperwork and let's get out of here. And let's go to Australia because he knew, he knew someone. I think he knew the mayor in Sydney somehow. And so he tried to tell all his friends to escape. None of them listened. They were the only ones that got out from that group. And uh, my, he knocked my grandmother up on the boat. And as soon as they arrived, he was born pretty much as soon as they arrived in Sydney. And then oh my goodness, they, they parted ways. So my dad was brought up in these really difficult circumstances with that, all of that Holocaust trauma and being in an, an immigrant trauma, all of that stuff. And, you know, they were forbidden to speak German and they, they sort of cut ties with the culture and it's about become, you know, assimilating and becoming Australian. And my dad has all of this completely undigested, untreated trauma. And, you know, maybe he was in a therapist's office for a couple of hours total in his life. And at one point I just said to him, because he was threatening to pull out of my wedding and all this sort of stuff. And I, I just we went for a walk one day and I said, look, I just, this isn't normal. This isn't normal. <laughs> and I, I'd love you to get some help. I, I think you need some help. And he said, look, I, I think it's really great that you said that to me. And I probably was really hard for a kid to say that to their parent. But at my age, if, uh, if a dentist said to me that my tooth were rotten and it was going to cost $100 or $1,000 per tooth to replace them, I'd say at this age, let them rot. <laughs> And this is how people evaluate and, you know, finances are a big thing and trauma treatment can be, you know, there haven't been a lot of cures, bona fide cures until more recent, you know, uh, decades, uh, SE being one of them. And so most people just, just learned to adapt and to live with stuff. And, you know, if you're high enough functioning, you tend not to, to attend to it. So I already was starting to see that there was going to be heritable aspects to, to trauma once I started learning about trauma. And I just said to dad at the time, you know, you know, well, how much money, how much, what monetary value would you place on your relationship <laughs> with your kids? And he said, that's a really good question, which he then never answered. So years later, I have, I've, or by, by that stage already, I'd accumulated really quite significant traumatic experiences, but I'd managed to just keep going. And I realized later that I'd been living off my sympathetic nervous system. I was just go, 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 do, do, do. And I was burning out. And then I went into a crash as a result of the burnout. And after finally being in New York for 9-11. Okay. And the, the people who were involved with the show on this press junket that we were on, freaked out and didn't handle it well so help wasn't coming and the people who were in charge weren't adulting we were sort of left to our own devices and when I finally got back to Australia I'd already made this decision and put the plan in motion I was like do I want to get married I don't know I'm not sure you know my parents were divorced I didn't sort of have a great sort of map for what healthy relationship looked like it's like well I want to see if maybe I want to get married and have kids and, you know, two weeks after I managed to get out of New York after 9-11, I met this person at a party on a dance floor and my nervous system said, yeah, marry him. So my trauma chose this person um, and, and I didn't understand how any of that worked. Most of us don't. And it wasn't until the marriage was on life support and, and you know, sure, it absolutely takes two to tango. I, I realized I needed to do my own trauma work. And as I started that, we went into the divorce, hot on the heels of this scuba diving accident. And then that started to just invite more and more trauma in. And so that was a 
chance encounter with the mother in the hallway at the school who said, you should go to this workshop. She did not use the word trauma, as I said before. And suddenly I'm sitting in this workshop, listening to Gina explain how trauma works at the individual level, at the level of the collective, how it's catching, you know, how we all affect each other. And then she called, she said to people, you know, let's do some demos of how this SE stuff works. Cause she used somatic experiencing as a major sort of, you know, scaffolding of her work. And I put up my hand. And so she did a demo on me because she'd said, you know, anyone having trouble sleeping? And I said, yeah, and I put my hand up and I just survived. I call it a home invasion. Someone came into my house. It was one person, but I didn't know at the time how many people it was. Um, a month prior, um, a very um, unwell fan had broken into my house. Oh, my goodness. And gone through our stuff and... My kids and I knew him. He used to help us out in a store and I was always very sweet with him and his health was deteriorating both physically and I think psychologically and emotionally. And, and, you know, he'd been through so much and I was always so sweet. And the last time I saw him, something really weird happened and there were some sort of red flags there, but I was already heavily traumatized. And a week later or so, I got this weird feeling at a baseball game and I had this weird feeling that he was there watching us. And then a week later, he was on our property. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And he, he'd come into the property and he was very well-meaning, but had just gone into a very distorted narrative about yeah. his relationship with us. And when I confronted him and said, what the hell are you doing here? He said, I got lost. I'm going to go now. And just got, just raced off in his car. And so I called the police and said, you know, this has happened and no one came. And then when they realized he'd actually been in the physical house, then things started to you know, escalate with the police and they came and a month and they said to me, look, you know, what do you want us to do with him? And I said, I want him to get the help that he needs. That's what I want. I don't want anything terrible to happen to him. I want him to keep his job if that's appropriate. You know, I want him to have his life. I just want him to get help. And then a month later, this home invasion happens and the police had warned, look, if something like this happens again, you need to call 911 immediately. Um, yeah. And 911 didn't listen to the directions I gave them. They got lost. They'd said lights and sirens in five minutes. It was at least 20 minutes and I'm standing there just, and from then on, I, I didn't really sleep very well. Yeah. And I had, you know, like decades of trauma leading up to this. And so Gina processed that event and uh, she, well, unbeknownst to me, she was going to process this event. She said, anyone having trouble sleeping? And I said, yeah. And she said, what is it? And I said, insomnia. And she said, having trouble getting to sleep and not sleeping at all or waking up and not getting back to sleep. And I said, I can maybe get to sleep, but then I've been waking up at the same time. And she just said, is there a particular event that occurred in your life around this time? And I said, oh, yeah, I went through a sort of home invasion thing, like a break-in at three at the, in the morning. She went, and that's when you're waking up. And I laughed because my brain hadn't made the connection, but that's what trauma does. We often won't make those kinds of logical connections anymore. Right. So within 20 minutes, she just did a short demo and normal sessions about 50 minutes. And she did a short demo and I could feel so much reorganizing in me. And that night I slept normally, slept through. And she'd also taught us this other technique. And it was interesting because there was a guy watching the demo and as I started to laugh and go oh I hadn't made that connection he went is she shitting me like it for real she didn't make the connection <laughs> 
And it just goes to show, I mean, I think there's a book called Trauma Makes Us Stupid. Um, and I'm not a fan of the word, but it's true. You know, we lose executive function and we just go into that lizard brain, you know, we go into the more primitive parts of our brain. So anyway, partway through the workshop, uh, and I talk about this story on my website, I came across, I was on a hike and I came across a complete stranger in total freeze on a cliff face. And I used some of the techniques that Gina had taught us as members of the media, because she was saying, look, you need to be responsible for the news you're getting out there, the content you're putting out there, the way you frame things, because you can either keep re-traumatizing people, you can be part of the trauma vortex, as she calls it, or you can be part of the healing vortex. And there's a way of communicating that supports one or the other, right? And so we have been in, to a great extent, this turducken of trauma in America, because we've been weaponizing the trauma vortex yeah. deliberately. You know, and Russia's been so clever at that. You know, they've always been good at the psyops. They've always been good at psychological manipulation and all mind games, all that sort of technology, all those tools. They've always been ahead of the game in that regard. And they've weaponized social media specifically for that purpose. Because yeah. the more the more binary we become in our thinking, the more simplified everything becomes, the more, you know, reducted everything becomes the easier we are to manipulate right and so on this hike i come across this person as i'm walking past his eyes look up at me and he says hi and he's sort of terrorized and i'm you know terrified and i just say hi and i walk past and my friend says i think you can help him and i said well i mean maybe he knew i was a facilitator in some environments but i didn't know if i could necessarily help in a way someone else hadn't prior and from what we could tell this guy had been there for two hours from what we heard anecdotally and finally, I was like, all right. My friend said, let's just watch from afar and see. And I, I said, all right, let's just look and see. And I didn't want to go into, I guess, what would have been a foreign response where I would go in. A part of the foreign response is, is not just to try and negotiate and appease, but also to help someone else to try and make myself feel better. Right? So I didn't want this to be about me sort of rescuing and saving and what have you and not being effective. And so this was this very defining moment for me in my life because finally I went, all right, I think let's give it a go. And there's this very sort of muscular guy walking down the hill towards us and the, the guy in crisis was down below us a bit. And I said, could you do me a favor to this, to this guy coming down? He said, yeah. And I said, look, this guy's in distress. And I was wondering if you could just go down and have a chat to him to break the, the conflict that was currently happening because this guy's partner, it looked like his romantic partner was gesticulating very aggressively and getting very frustrated, looking at his watch and tisking and sighing and huffing and slapping his, you know, slapping his thigh as if this was putting him out enormously that they've been there for so long, which would have been even more traumatizing and shame inducing for this poor guy. So I was hoping that this guy could at least break that pattern that was happening. And then I saw it sort of, you know, just things started to come down a little and then I, I went in. So I went and sat, I went next to the guy and I said, hi. I said, I think I might be able to help. Can I, can I sit? He said, okay. And I sat down next to him and the first thing he said was, this is, I, I'm so scared. And I acknowledged him, which is a key part of this work that Gina had been teaching us just in this three-day workshop. And I said, well, this is really scary. And this guy went into an instant shift. The minute his experience was reflected back to him and honored and acknowledged, he started to downregulate because he was finally being heard. And really it taught me that everything in the universe is just looking for acknowledgement. And Einstein talked about that. You know, if you acknowledge something, energy in some way, it starts to shift within seven to 10 seconds. Josh Peist, this really interesting acting teacher and actor, and people would know his work if they looked him up, P-A-I-S is the way you spell his last name, has this fantastic technique that he, he created called um, 
committed impulse, which is all about this work. It's about acknowledgement and just acknowledging what's happening in the body and not trying to fight it. And it's very aligned with SE. So I'd love to ask Josh one day if he's, if he's you know, worked with the SE model. Anyway, this guy starts to just sort of take in this deeper breath. And I intuitively, I didn't know this was a crucial aspect of working with Freeze. I said to him, can you do me a favor if you can? And he asked what that was. And I said, could you just focus on your hands and your feet for a second? And so you work with, with the extremities when people are in Freeze to see if they can just mobilize a little. And he just started to bring his attention out of the places where he was probably feeling the most intense sensations and started to just, I said, could you just, yeah, just wiggle your fingers and just wiggle your toes and just articulate your hands and feet a bit. And he started to do that and he started to shift again. And it's a classic thing to invite people out of that freeze response is to just get some part of them moving, any part of them, but the extremities are good ones normally. And I can't remember exactly what happened next, but I just kept acknowledging his experience because obviously I hadn't trained in the SE model, but Gina uses SE tools. And I said, and I just started to look around a bit to sort of invite him naturally. I didn't know what I was doing, but just to sort of orient a bit outside of his body. And so I looked at the dude that I'd asked to help. And I said, you know, at some point, I trust and I was wanting to empower him because Gina had talked about that too. I trust that you're going to be able to use your strong legs, your own legs to stand up and you're going to be able to use your own strong legs at some point, at some point down the line to just stand up and, you know, you can, you can use the strong shoulders and body of this man here who's volunteering to help. And you can, if you like, that's okay with you, sir. He nodded and said, of course, you want to put your hands on this man's shoulders for support and just walk down that mountain, you know, at some point. Because I wanted to give him a frame that was broader than his current experience and what he'd been in for two hours. And the minute I said it, he stood up, put his hands on the guy's shoulders <laughs> and walked down the mountain, never turned back, don't know the dude's name, probably will never see him again. And I thought, holy shit. That's amazing. I just was able to help a complete stranger in a horrible, like a, an awful crisis and nothing else had helped. And after the work I'd started to do or tried to do on my own trauma, I had had serious freeze in my own life. I'd had to go to court and advocate and, you know, for other people. And I could barely speak because I had so much trauma building up in my system. I had to advocate for myself and I felt like I couldn't even speak. And after being, you can tell how verbal I am, I was losing my ability to function. And the fact that this tool intervened in this moment with a complete stranger changed his entire experience enough that he was able to do what he needed to do and get out of that crisis was the most extraordinary emotional and physiological triage tool I'd ever encountered. And the next day I went back to the workshop and I said to Gina, I'm, I need to tell you something and now I need to know what it is you do and understand it more. And Gina said, you should learn the SE model. You need to train in it. And I said, I'm an actor. I don't know if that's really, I don't need another career really. And she said, I insist you need to learn this. You take into this in a way that it's, it's a language for you that you really understand. And I was like, I can't really afford it. She said, I'll put you on scholarship. Good. That, that, <laughs> well, I that's, couldn't... you know, that's what they do if you, you know, if, if you're that good at basketball, they just let you go to the school for free. You know, that's... There you go. Yeah. Well said. So that's really, you know, I, I, I needed it. 
And it was one of the things I'd said to, I say to a lot of people, you know, the more she would start describing things, she would say, you know, if you've already had a boundary rupture in your system, in your nervous system, or physically from a car accident, if your shoulder gets bashed against a car door, then that boundary, that physical boundary is ruptured forever until you find some kind of treatment intervention for that shoulder. And you are going to continue to invite more things in to happen on that side of your body. Your orienting system might be off. You might keep losing balance and falling as a result of something hitting against you. And SE is, as a model just is so comprehensive. It's not a panacea, obviously, but it just it can affect positively so many different aspects of our experience as a human. And it's so effective that I, I can't stand the idea of anyone. So I just knocked my water bottle. I can't stand the idea of anyone suffering the way I did with traditional models that might not do much for 10 years and cost a fortune. So I was, I just suddenly became very galvanized by this to sort of offer it however I could. So I don't want you to give away all your secrets here for nothing, but uh, can you, um, are there any tips that you might share, um, you know, for the listeners on, I think people are having a lot of anxiety. I think that's, that's one of the things I think people have, panic they have anxiety they they don't sleep well i mean everybody certainly the people that have been really paying attention to all this trump russia stuff for want of a better word in the last five oh. years i've seen people you know yeah. start to lose it a little bit i mean yeah. yeah i find with me like i have trouble like latching on to things like i can't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. read a book from start to finish i, I mm -hmm. just i lose interest i can't you know my wife will be like let's watch this show on netflix i'm like oh, i can't yeah if it's not yeah. something I've already seen, I just, I can't. And part of it is I'm paying attention all the time to the stuff that's happening. And part of it is a lot of people are like, you should write about this and you should write about that. And part of it is I'm writing so much and I'm generating so much content that when right. I'm not doing that, I think my brain just needs to do absolutely nothing and be still. But um, yeah, I don't know. And then when I do find something I like, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I saw the Batman movie twice this weekend in 24 hours because I'm like, I got to see this again, you know. Um, oh, that's great. Um, so, and what do you think of it, by the way? Oh, it's fantastic. It's so good. Did you Is see it? Is it really awesome? Oh, no, no, no not yet. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's really good. Really, really good. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Well, I value your opinion on that. That's awesome. Look forward to having something to, to, to do. Uh, you know, obviously, I've limited my theater time, my cinema time. So uh, quite a few things. First of all, again, if people want to go to the website, there's a ton of things that they can fish around and find. Some people are able to to, to read a book. Some people... You know, I've included books that I think actually provide so much positive and useful information and tools and tips and exercises that, that you know, there's an added value. It's not just, and I've been very clear, I think, you know, delineated, this is quite a dry textbook. This is for practitioners. This is for lay people, but this is also for what I call growth nerds, people who are just obsessed with their own healing and growth like me and just not going to stop. Right. And so, you know, some people have just decided I'm not going to continue learning and growing in this lifetime. I don't want to heal. It's been too hard. I'm good with where I'm at. Not a growth nerd now. Maybe they were earlier, but what I define as a growth nerd currently is someone who just keeps wanting to go down that rabbit hole. Secondly, I would say for you as you know, just as an example, ventral vagal support and tone, improving your ventral vagal tone will help you significantly. And so getting into nature, mm -hmm. grounding in nature, uh, taking off your shoes and going through that grounding exercise that you've probably heard described, if you can get onto, I think it kind of works with concrete, but I think it works with natural stone outside and, you know, things like flagstone or whatever, just getting into a little patch of grass with your shoes off, 
the 10 to 20 minutes can have a really significant distance, uh, difference impact on your, on your nervous system. People have no idea how much self-touch actually works. Um, and so that's something that Peter Levine brought in and a lot of the senior practitioners uh, impressed upon us as we were working over Zoom with clients. So actually supporting ourselves in, in a couple of simple ways. I just have to remind myself that we're basically on radio now. So putting your hand you know, behind your neck, where your neck and your head meet and just holding there for a minute when our brain is hurting or we feel really overwhelmed. What you'll start to notice as you become more aware of this type of work, my, my stomach just breathed a breath for me. That's an autonomic parasympathetic type breath where I'm not prescribing the breath. It just started to happen for me. People who have shoulder injuries or a lot of tension won't find this one comfortable, so don't do it. These suggestions are just if it works or if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. At the same time, you can also put another hand on your forehead or forehead and do the two at once. And what I find is it just sort of it, it immediately takes me into a down regulation cycle. Other ones that you can do in terms of self-touch, you can literally just hold the area that hurts. So, or if someone's holding a ton of tension in their jaw, you can literally, yeah, just hold your jaw. You can put your hands, your palms, rather than muscling in and trying to massage it, it's more supportive and more effective normally to just place your hands there like palms, like, like a parent might with a child who's in distress. It's those kind of developmental gestures that we instill intuitively do when we're caring for someone whether we know them or not that are really good for the nervous system and again if it feels good do it and if it doesn't feel good don't but notice what happens when you do it if you start to feel better or not and if you don't start to feel better then don't do that one placing our hands or a hand over our hearts very good ventral vagal support you can also at the same time place one hand on the abdomen these are all different types of grounding exercises I'm doing the things that you're saying, by the way, for people listening. Right, which is great. And Claudia can hear it, but can see me do it, but nobody, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, and yeah. it actually really helps to mirror. And so if you're in a household and your kids are getting really distressed, if you start doing it, it's like you've noticed at the table, if you're sitting in a dinner table and you suddenly change your posture, other people around you will change their posture too sometimes. Yeah. It's the, as creatures, we're picking up cues all the time from others. And so if someone's in distress and they can't speak, doing these kinds of gestures may start signaling to them or it may even support you to start down regulation and then they might start taking those regulation shift cues from you there's a fantastic one that came from the emdr model originally which is the eye movement desensitization reprogramming or reorganizing something like that i've forgotten what the r is and emdr is a, a model that people use for memory recovery and trauma it's considered to be a trauma cure though i would say um having done some emdr myself it was very important to bring in a somatic element because otherwise you're sort of recovering memory and then all of that data that energy is staying in the body and it's got nowhere to go still. SE cleans out the nervous system and the soma so that it's flushing out. So you've got the memory recovery plus if you find that's necessary for your healing. You know, there's a very, you know, established school of thought now that you don't have to recover your memories in order to heal. You can literally just go through the body, which is why SE is such a great and compassionate model. But the butterfly tap is used in the SE models. Gina Ross has a model that's on the site that I'll be including. It's called Emotion Aid. You can also go to Gina Ross's websites 
Um, you can go to the Somatic Experiencing website, and I include all these websites on mine uh, as a landing page for people to find these resources. And so part of uh, Gina's Emotion Aid tool is using the butterfly tap, where you put your hands across your body on opposite shoulders, and you just tap like you've got butterfly wings. You know, you don't have to count, but you can do that about 20 times. And I'm, you're rocking, and I started to rock as you started to I do al that. I always rock, by the way. I, I, and I can't stop right. doing that. Well, that's a self-regulation yeah. response, right? Obviously. Yeah, but I've I've always done it since I was a little kid. So and I have all to... of this stuff is like stimming, right? It becomes, yeah. it's, it's, it's We do it for a reason. Our bodies are choosing this stuff for a reason. You know, you'll find after doing the tapping, I use the tapping, the tools for different things. So I find I start with a butterfly tap if I'm in distress, but in particular, I use it because it's really good for bilateral stimulation of both hemispheres of the brain. So I'm finding that my memory is shot. And so I won't remember basic words like the thing that the kids go on to get to school that's yellow. <laughs> Those words right. are not coming to my brain and someone goes, boss, I go, yeah. So if another person isn't around, I'll be doing the butterfly tapping or I'll be doing it anyway, because I find for me, the minute I start to do that bilateral stimulation or in engage in this, which then helps the stimulation, you know, the bilateral stimulation, I'll get words back. So I'll get greater function in my brain if I start to do this exercise. If you're on a Zoom or if you're at a meeting at the bank and you're getting stressed out, you can just alternate tap your knees and you don't have to cross them over. You'll get a similar effect. So you, they might think you're just fidgeting or you can just gently tap. You can't really see what I'm doing, can you, no. on Zoom right now? So you can do that and that should actually start to help you with memory or help you downregulate. For some people, it's triggering because it's too much stimulation to the body. But for others, it might be a really, you know, good tool. Uh, basically, anything that grounds you back into your body. Nature is an incredible tool. There are, there are, there's technology that I use because I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to tools that, you know, like this bio feedback tool that I'm hooked up to at the moment. Uh, varying price ranges and stuff. So I sort of, you know, I like weight blankets. They've been really helpful for me. I honestly... I'm, I'm at the bottom end of the spectrum. I'm neurodiverse. I'm ADD and attentive and have some processing stuff. But I find a lot of the tools that are recommended for kids who have Asperger's or autism, a lot of those tools also help me, especially the sort of like, you know, the weight blankets um, uh, and my sensory stuff. I'm super sensitive to sounds and certain things. So those tend to be very helpful when we're traumatized. Uh, that said, it's going to play out in our nervous systems differently. Those who tend to, you know, if someone, what we would call shock trauma, which is not electroshock treatment, a shocking event, like a shooting somewhere. Um, if a population of people are impacted by that event, they are at an event and there is a shooting. The, the data used to say that um, 60 to 70% of the population who were there will not have long lasting trauma symptoms afterward and so that people started to say why why does 30 to 40 percent what's what's different about them how much trauma they have had in their system before that what kind of resources they have what their specific experience was of the event were they very close up were they directly involved and then another big factor in any general sort of stressful or traumatizing event is what we attempted to do in the moment, did we succeed or did we not? So if soldiers are engaging in, an, in a stressful event and then are able to run, jog back to where they're staying, to their barracks, wherever they have shelter, those soldiers tend to do better 
statistically because they've been able to move and the energy from that stressful event has been able to, to move through. They've been able to process all of the cortisol and the adrenaline that recruits, right? Um, so movement can be very important after we've, and we know we're supposed to move and exercise, but a lot of us aren't. I'm not exercising and I know I need to, you know, I'll walk the dogs, but that's it. And I know I need to do more. So it's how do we find that balance between real rest that we need, which you're needing. And I think you'll find that if you, if you go into real rest and really genuinely rest and really let yourself go and really let yourself just really melt and collapse into the couch or whatever you're lying on over time with some more ventral vagal tone improvement, you won't need to go into such a collapse response and then you'll be able to go into more active recovery. And so that's sort of like a spectrum and a process of going from bracing all the time into maybe some collapse and then recalibrating so that you can be a little bit more active and engaged, right? Baths are amazing for people who have a lot of freeze in their system. If you have the luxury of a bathtub and some hot water access, anything that produces heat, like heat blankets, if, you're, if your system runs cold and you feel like you can just never, you can never get warm enough, any kind of tool that brings heat into the system will be helpful. I'm contemplating starting the Wim Hof thing again, but it, it's not great for me that cold plunging because I had so much freeze in my system already. Yeah, yeah. It was too, too, it felt too unkind and too brutal. And what I love about the SE model is it's a compassionate titrated model, meaning we're working slowly and gently with the stress energy. We're not forcing it. But really, I think the revolution in our healing is going to occur through our bodies. Um, so almost a century ago, Freud was about to was announcing to his peers that he believed that trauma was in the body per Peter Levine's books and people reporting on this. He, he, Freud had found, you know, really was starting to see that trauma resided in the body. And his peers said, you're nuts. You can't say that stuff. Take a left turn somehow. And he did. And instead almost started immediately blaming women and saying they were hysterical and crazy. And so we lost, I mean, I you know, oversimplified that narrative, but we lost this incredible opportunity at that turning point. And we became so mind focused in therapeutic models, in scholastic models, in work models, where we become these automatons that are trained to sort of stay, you know, in the head and not attend to the needs of the body and the revolution. And what we're seeing in this sort of, really dysregulated collective in America is really undigested fight, flight, and freeze, really. That's really yeah. what we're seeing is the people who are going off on the convoy to do something probably had an experience where they had thwarted fight response. They were, they were in an aggressive situation at some point in their lives and they tried to fight and they didn't succeed. And now they have this fight energy that they don't know what to do with that's still in their nervous system from years ago. This is simplifying things, but honestly can almost be that. We can look at it through that lens and understand a lot of this very easily. You know, the best option for humans in general and animals is fleeing, is the flight response. But if our, if our ability to flee is thwarted, we're gonna have all of that adrenaline and cortisol and all those hormones that recruit to get us out of there, trapped in the system because we didn't succeed. In, in trying to run away to begin with. And then we probably ended up in a freeze response after that. And as a result, we've got all of that adrenaline and all of that fear and hopelessness and helplessness trapped in the system. And so what people end up with over time is learnt hopelessness, learnt helplessness, shame, fear, all of this stuff still like a layer cake in their soma. Yeah. So the more we find these physical modalities, the better off we are going to be to move this stuff through because we are creatures and our creature selves 
I want to be in, you know, in the collective when you see the choices people are making. It's their creature that's being most, most active. And when we're in our lizard brains, you know, our amygdala can't discern between, you know, can't discern time and, and space and doesn't, can't tell when we're triggered in our amygdala. And as Gina says, amygdala hijack, we can't discern between whether it's happening now or it's a trigger from a past event. So we're operating, a lot of people in the collective are operating from this sense of perceived threat. Yeah. And the minute we, we think we're in perceived threat, you know, in Russia and all of these, you know, uh, bad actors have created great narratives around perceived threat. They're finding scapegoats all over the place. And the sure. minute we have these identified scapegoats, they're a perceived threat. And the minute it triggers something in our nervous system that there's a perceived threat, we go into the physiology that is a, a response to threat and that's unsustainable. It makes us incredibly unwell. It wears us out and it makes us, you know, we, we're not operating from our, from our executive function, from our neocortex. So we're making very primal, basic antisocial decisions based on the fact that our nervous system thinks we're under threat from something. So, you know, we've got all of these things impacting us. We're all going to start probably already do feel like we're, we're incredibly threatened. Yeah, well, we have we are under threat. So it's interesting that the, that bit about Freud and um, making the left turn because it does make sense that there's an integration between the body and the mind, and there's so much, certainly in the last hundred years, so much emphasis on the brain, and, and to the exclusion of the body. I'm talking about myself too. Like you know, yeah, everything I do is right. trying to develop, you know, what I'm thinking and and stuff like that. And I, I'm not very good at. Uh, you know, listening to my body and and, and that kind of thing, but it make it makes sense. Most and then of us the quarantine not. comes along, and we're all just looking at each other like in these little boxes on the screen, which yep. seems to push us more and more into that mental and not physical thing. So it it makes yeah. logical sense to me that uh, some sort of integration uh, between um, you know the mind and the body is is the way out of this. Yeah, great word. Integration is important. Yeah. And I wanted to say, you've mentioned your website, and as a, a not very good podcast host, I've neglected to say what the website is. It's, it's claudiablackconsulting.com. That's what it is. I'll put it in the show notes. So this is all really good uh, information. Um, oh, I was in New York also on 9-11, by the way. I lived in New York at the right. time. So yeah, yeah. So that's an example of a collective trauma that I think everybody had based on, you know, I think how much they were traumatized you know, how close were you to the, to the buildings and all the, all this kind of stuff. Right. right. Yeah. And, and the very, the different ways that it impacted and, and what, what I find so frustrating and what I, what I want for people in general, especially in America with this health system, there are fantastic, extraordinary members of the medical profession in America. You know, I mean, I, I would have had a deformed hand were it not for a trauma two surgeon who stitched my finger back on after a, a motorbike accident, <laughs> a, a, a dirt bike accident. It wasn't a road bike. It was a dirt bike. But, um, you know, he did an extraordinary job. And I used all of my SE tools on the way to the hospital. And while I was there, and I was so calm, because I was using these tools, I was sort of holding my finger back on in a bandage that the park ranger had given me that I said to my friend driving me, by the way, you're probably going to have to speak for me because I'm doing all of this work to keep myself chill so that I don't have lasting trauma after this event. But you're probably going to have to speak for me because the minute they, I have to start using words, I'll probably start to feel the pain of this thing. And they don't, they say you probably shouldn't take painkillers before you get to the hospital, right? So I was like, just staying, you know, yeah. managing the pain through the SE model. And I get there and sure enough, I'm by that point, there's only one person ahead of me and they're pretty much done with them. 
And then they make me wait at the front of the line and they're not attending to me. And so I start to nervously giggle. And my friend comes in and says, what's going on? I said, they're making me wait. And I'm sort of trying to signal. And they're like, just hold it, just hold it there, please, ma'am. And I was like, and I start to, you know, more nervous laughter. And she, I said, so you might need to speak for me. She goes, could, you know, and we sort of gestured that she goes, yeah, okay, sit down. And then someone comes over and then another nurse comes over and sees me sitting in the chair and sees the bandage, but doesn't see what's in it. And says, is she going to like trauma, trauma one, two, like on a scale of one to 10, where am I at? And she's thinking I'm at the bottom level. And just as she says that I open up the bandage and my fingers partially amputated and she goes, no, oh my God, partial or full amputation, trauma 9, 10, immediately. And because I was so calm using these tools, they had their scales for determining how a person is and what treatment they should have are absurd. I saw them on the walls from the yellow face to the green yeah. face to the red face, the emojis, the precursors to emojis. They're a ridiculous system, but it's all the hospitals have had for the longest time or, you know, hopefully they're being replaced. But I remember seeing the origins of that somewhere and it's really kind of insidious i think it's part of that pain scale that came in with um purdue and that type of pain oh i didn't know that purdue was an, oh god okay i sure. think they're partly involved in that pain scale diagram and if you know if the patient's at this point then you can give them some opiates or whatever you know like oh terrible what i want for people coming off that thin branch is to really be understood, because with the Hippocratic Oath that people used to have to take, which is now gone, apparently, you're supposed to listen to the patient with what they, how they present. And a lot of the time we get so gaslit in the medical system and our traumas often present as physical symptoms and, you know, autoimmune stuff or, you know, uh, I had, I started to get extreme, you know, I go into anaphylaxis when I was exposed to certain allergens, but they didn't know what it was. And it's because my system was so inflamed from trauma. It was trying to find a way out and it was coming through in the way of big reactions and things. I had all of these different digestive disorder, all kinds of stuff going on. So because America is so heavily specialized, I would go to these specialists and they would want to give me meds or whatever, or they couldn't cure it, but they'd try to symptom-based treat. Right? Yeah, yeah. And the problem, one of the biggest issues where, where it comes to trauma and the Western medical system is the Western medical system, I don't know if they've changed this now, but they used to train their doctors to believe that every system in the body was discrete and that every organ was discrete and that one system could not adversely impact another system. So I would eat something, I would eat some yogurt and go, huh, now my nose is so blocked. And my mum, who's a scientist that was a medically trained scientist, would say, don't be ridiculous. There's no way that the, the yogurt could have caused your nose to become blocked. There's no way that the digestive system can adversely impact the respiratory system. Because that's how they were trained. But the evidence was right in front of her and it was occurring in real time. Yeah, in front yeah. of her, right? But because of her training, impossible for her to even conceive. And so that people continue to get gaslit in the Western medical traditional system because they're presenting with things that are actually happening, but they don't have a frame for it. And what happens with trauma in particular is trauma can impact all of your systems. Trauma sure. can impact all of your organs, but it can iterate through each individual system differently when it comes to symptoms based on heritable traits and our DNA and what have you. Um, I'd say we are much more inclined to trigger in our DNA the things that we're predisposed to the more trauma we have in our system. And it can be defined just as information. But if we can find 
you know, and one of the things I talk about because I, I refer to myself in part as a trauma and creativity coach is one of the most beautiful things about the SC model is that it uses the imagination for what often we'll call a corrective experience because the amygdala is inflamed because we're triggered and we can't tell, oh my God, you know, when the client sort of can't tell whether it's from the past or something's happening in real time, we help them discern with dual awareness. You're here right now. How do you know that you're safe? Look around you. That's another great tool when you get distressed. Can you count three colors or can you count three shapes or 10 colors or 10 shapes to take you outside of the somatic experience of yourself in that moment and to look around and just orient outside of yourself and then maybe return to the body and just find a part of you that feels okay. And just focus on that part of you that feels okay and then see if it wants to expand. That's the titrated model, right? Another really important part of the model is resourcing. And resources and imagination are free if we still live in a democratic model. Um, <laughs> there are internal resources. Yeah, financial resources make a huge difference. And a lot of us do, you know, don't have the money to have regular treatment for things, uh, which is why I wanted to include so much on my website. And I will continue to add things. It's a very rudimentary you know, cookie cutter type site, but I just wanted to get the information out there as soon as I could so people have access. So there's internal resources and external resources. And in the SE model, we, we talk about those as not actually costing anything. So what are the things and people uh, that we have around us that bring us joy and make us feel happy to be alive and grateful? And those things we can use to feed our nervous system. We have internal resources as well, uh, things that we actually can define about ourselves that we like. You know, I have a good sense of humor. When I use that at the right time, it's a great tool. It really helps people connect and it's great for anxiety and it's a big release of tension. Um, I'm a great storyteller at the right time and place. You know, there are things about ourselves that we can, you know, put on a list that we know about ourselves to be true. And just by thinking about those things for a minute and then what we would describe as going into the body and tracking sensation as we think about that good thing, it may be more subtle intelligence because the sort of the more parasympathetic soothing stuff is more quiet in the body, but we might notice a feeling of expansion or we might just feel a little more open or a little more relaxed or just better somehow. And we may not be able to define how or why we feel better, but just thinking, this is the integrative piece that you described, thinking about the thing that we like, but then you go into the body and notice what you notice in the body as you think about that thing. And it's incredible, just me even talking about some of that stuff. I heard my stomach gurgle. So peristalsis is a sign that I've gone into the parasympathetic side of my nervous system. I can feel, you know, warmth throughout my body. I'm feeling some tingles down my arms. I'm getting all these sensations that are starting to indicate to me because I've learned the language of SE and sensation that I'm relaxing more because I've started to think about some good things. And so we have these tools that we can use that are free that can make us feel a darn sight better and it's you know simple things with consent like hugs basic human touch and and then it, it i think we we tend to think that oh it the solution can't be that simple of course it's multifactorial and things are complex but if we can notice what we notice when we get that resource when we receive that thing in the felt sense which is you know, the, the label that Peter Levine gives it. Going into the body and noticing, how do we know that we feel better? Well, I just guess I feel warmer everywhere. Or I, 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 I'm feeling just a lightness in me and before I felt heavy. So if we can just track that we feel better than we did before, our nervous system is actually going to receive that. 
as a bit of nourishment so that it can continue to do its job for us, which is to then help us to flush out the stuff that's stuck. So it's really working like a washing machine. You know, we want to feed the parasympathetic side of our nervous system with these resources and with these tools so that we can then get the gunk out that's been there for God knows how long. These are great. These are great tips. And thank you so much for sharing all of this stuff. Um, you know, even, even for me listening and I was doing the <laughs> movements as you were describing them again, not that anybody yeah. can tell, they just hear me not talking for a while, <laughs> but it's because I'm doing yeah. the, the things. And I think it, you know, I think it does help. And I think part of it is just sort of committing to the idea of it, um, you know, which is important too, and just saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, focus on the body right now and, and, and not just kind of mentally roll my eyes and be like, yeah, it's not going to work. And that kind of thing. I think 100%. it's important to, I was going to, I was going to end the, 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 uh, the show talking about your, um, your curry comeback thread, which I, which oh, I read again. God. Yeah. Okay. We, we don't have to talk. We, we, we don't have no, to talk sure. about that, uh, at, no, sure. at, at length, but, um, basically what, what happened was you, uh, <laughs> saw this very young actor 20 years ago or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, gushed on him to make sure that he knew that he was good. And you gave him some sort of acting advice. And then, you know, you sort of forgot about it. And, and, and the, the guy is, is McAvoy, who's now this, you know, big actor fellow. Huge star yeah. and fantastic. And, uh, and, but from all reports, a great guy. And he said in an interview, he talked about meeting you 20 years ago and that you gave him this, this bit of advice that always stuck with him and you know, made him feel better and stuff, which is very cool that you, you guys took the time to do that. And it really did have an impact on him. But what but the advice that he had, because I read this too, that you gave him, at least as he was explaining it is that, um, you know, when you're doing sci fi stuff, as opposed to just, you know, non sci fi stuff, where you're dressed in right. normal clothes and whatever, you have to really you know, you have to, you have to sell it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now. You have to sell it more. You have to really go all into it and commit to it more because the, the universe that there that's created there is so, uh, you know, on the face crazy. And I think it's the same exact thing with what you're with, with this stuff, with the somatic stuff. I think it's, uh, it's about commitment at the end of the day. I mean, the worst thing that you can do as an actor is not commit to whatever role it is that you're playing, right? If you're, I, I, I've acted in college and stuff, I'm not an actor, but like, you know, the worst thing you can do, you see it even like with stand-up comics and stuff like that. The, the best stand-up comics, just they're just committing to it 100%. They're not even really waiting for the laughs. They're just all in. And almost, they're almost relentless in the way that they are um, approaching the character of the funny guy doing the stand-up because they don't, they don't seem to care whether or not you laugh because once you show weakness or doubt in the performance, everything turns to shit. And I, you know, right. and I, I don't know. I just, I, I see a correlation between the two things. I see a correlation between the advice that you gave and the yep. somatic thing. Yeah. So many correlations. Firstly, the imagination is my favorite part that you can recruit to help the amygdala. Cause I don't think I finished that. Cause I, oh, my ADD is so, my symptoms are so up at the moment and I'm not medicated and I'm like, oh my God, I'll just start talking in spirals and circles. And then I may or may not bring the thread back. Most of them I've brought back today, but you know, my God, I, dear listeners, I'm so sorry. Um, no, no, so, you've been, you've ugh, been fine. Yeah. It, you have that. I have a cold. It's all good. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the imagination, like the amygdala will, doesn't understand whether something's happening in real time or not. So you could use that to, to advantage. So if someone's triggered and they're like, I feel panicked because I feel like there's a monster in the room. It's like, okay, in your imagination, what 
what would your imagination find as the most awesome thing to get rid of that monster? So I don't prescribe it. The client's imagination is suddenly going to say, I would have a water squirt gun because this monster is terrified of water. And I go, awesome. I invite you in this moment to imagine the, the water squirt gun hitting the monster, however you want to do it, whatever that looks like, go. And it doesn't take much of a prompt. And most people took me a while to get my, some aspects of my imagination back because I was very blocked from it when I was traumatized. And it can feel terrifying to use the imagination for a lot of reasons. In great part, I think Julia Cameron described this, and I, I believe this 100%, that a lot of creative people get blocked from using their imagination because it was the very tool they had to use to escape a traumatizing event in their childhood. So to reopen that box of imagination is going to be connected to or overcoupled, as we would say, with that trauma, traumatic event. So utilizing the imagination in a really positive way, the client will start to, the, the young part of them, most likely, you know, that's been triggered by the monster, starts to resource and then get empowered and get rid of, vanquish this monster with the tool that their young self and imagination found. And then their s symptoms start to shift and they start to downregulate. And then you just check in to see if they've finished what we would call a cycle of pendulation. And then we check back in again to see if there's still any sort of energy in there that's connected to the event. And normally the imagination piece is so powerful that the work is now in that part complete. And so when I was talking to James, he was like, God, the science fiction stuff is so hard. I don't know how you guys do it all the time. And I said, you've just got to believe it. Yeah. You have to believe it because if you don't, it's a disaster. You are required in the science fiction model to use every aspect of your imagination so that the, you are a conduit for the audience. If I believe it, then the audience has a shot of believing it, a much better shot. And so, and there's a, that, there's a whole conversation we could go into another day about what's described as method acting and the dangers of that for everyone, not just the actor themselves and what people often mislabel as method, which is not really method. But the more embodied we are in our lives as actors, as artists, the better off the experience is for everyone, not just the artists, but the people around us, right? If we're too much in our minds, and, you know, Einstein said imagination is in our body, right? So we really need to be in our body and present and watching and listening. And the, the hardest thing in science fiction about using your imagination is you're not getting something real in the room to react to. So you're having to go more internal to find it. And that can sometimes take us to our minds and our brains rather than our imaginations, right? So we have to find tools that work for us to bring it to life. And so for me, it's a feeling. What would it feel like to have this thing coming towards me? And that feeling gets conveyed through the screen to the audience as if it's not my job to prove that I am a space warrior. It's to prove that I could be. And I can do that through feeling and imagination, right? Well put, that's, well put, yeah. That, that's the job. And so... You know, finally, to that, that, that moment with James McAvoy, I mean, there were so many things about that story that were really lovely, but just someone also said to me about stage fright, and there's, you know, it's not as simple as this necessarily, but it really helped me. They said, if you have stage fright, if you get performance anxiety, you are, it's, it's, it's egotistical. And I said, why? Because I didn't identify as a, you know, I mean, I have a, yeah, an interesting ego, let's put it that way. But I, I never thought of myself as selfish. And that's the way they'd frame it. They said, it's definitely selfish if you have performance anxiety. And I said, do tell. And they said, well, people have shown up and they've potentially paid to watch you do this thing. And if you're nervous, then you are withholding and depriving them of the full experience that they showed up to see. 
whether we think that's entirely true or not, it really helped me frame things with regard to belief. Because if I'm not giving my 100%, I'm not, I'm, I'm not giving the audience the 100% that they, sh they showed up to enjoy and to see. And that I see a correlation to. And so I think what is asked of a client though is not, you don't even have to have 100% commitment. I think most people in the past have not done any trauma work unless it was the last thing because they were desperate, myself included. I was so foobard that I, I needed something other than talk therapy. And I'd, I'd met a few terrible talk therapists and psychiatrists, and I'd met a couple of great ones. And the fact that it was sort of touch and go, and it's very hard to find a great practitioner when you're already mm -hmm. traumatized. That's right. a tough conundrum, right? A bit of a paradox. And so finding someone that feels like a good fit and, and, and just giving it, just dipping your toes in a good, a good, or even a decent somatic experiencing practitioner is going to be effective, whether you're fully committed or not, uh, especially right now, because our nervous systems have been so impacted by everything that just learning some tools for down-regulation and self-regulation and borrowing, as we say, the practitioner's better regulated or well-regulated nervous system is going to have efficacy. And then, you know, what I do when I'm consulting with people is I, I try to under-promise and over-deliver. So I'll be, you know, I tend to give people a bunch of tools to try at home if they want to, because I don't want that, them to feel that tyranny of session work. I'm not trying to drum up business ever. The model is so effective because it's about engendering autonomy and self-agency. Yeah. So you're, you're describing what's happening in session in real time so that the person can learn to do that on their own mm -hmm. and then pay it forward elsewhere, right? So, you know, it's, it's such a great model for all of those reasons because a lot of us have, you know, one of my favorite people in my family is a Freudian psychoanalyst. And that commitment is 10 years. Yeah, that's... Uh... Who? Who has the money and the time and the patience? The asteroid the might hit us, you know. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. God willing. <laughs> I mean, right now. But that's why that that's, so that's why we need space warriors to fight off the asteroids invasion, you know. You're welcome. <laughs> I really think this I still carry this little wish, like Galaxy Quest, which is a near perfect film, ladies yes. and gents. That's a hill I'll die on. Um my life is like, I hope my life reads, my roles that I've played in space read like a historical document and that when they do come from the outer galaxy, I'm one of the first to be picked to go and have a positive experience with my kids. I'm like, these people are coming with me. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, this, has been, this has been spectacular. Um, I, oh. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's claudiablackconsulting.com. That's, that's the website. Um, yeah, I, I really learned a lot. And I know that, you know, people listening to this, there's a lot to absorb, certainly, but it, right. you hit a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of resources on the site. And, you know, the one other point I'm going to make really quick, because we're, we're running out of time is that, you know, this is a serious thing. Trauma is a serious thing. And I, I believe that anybody that lives this just, just by dint of being alive at this moment in history has has experienced some or other uh, trauma from the collective. So, you know, right. take it seriously. That's that, that that's what I have to say. Take it seriously. Take yourself seriously and um, and take your health seriously, you know. And right. And uh, yes, uh, I was going to say amen. But as Clarissa Pinkola, Estes's grandmother would say, amen and a little woman. And I'm like, why is the woman little? Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the beauty in some, as some of my mentors say, you know, 
if you can recruit the imagination, if you can be playful, a lot of us don't think we deserve to heal in a playful way and we think we have to suffer in order to heal. And so what I would say is it's really incredible and effective and efficient and damn near miraculous to witness people playfully healing. And you can do that in SE, you can do that in other models and discerning and maybe I should put a piece up on the on the side about how to sort of find a practitioner that you know feels like they can bring you relative safety because that's what we really all need now and that's what the polyvagal work does is to help us the ventral vagal work you know find relative safety in ourselves and around the people that we're with and if we can do that playfully with dance and music and uh, things that light us up and that we enjoy if we can find a way to do them and, and not have them cost a dime then I think we're going to be in really good shape. Amen and a little woman. Claudia Black, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signet Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give.